Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Get ready for it. I know you've been waiting. I know you're dying to know what happened at this year's annual conference of the Midwestern Section of the American Society of Plant Biologists. Well, the time has come. As you might have already figured out if you listen to this show very much, my research background is in plant biology, botany, plant science, whatever you want to call it. I like plants, okay? Well, now hands off that radial dial. Don't start changing the radio station or don't start looking for another podcast just because you don't think plants are very interesting or you don't think plants are relevant to your life. Because first of all, historically speaking, what goes on in botany research labs is often a prelude to what is discovered in other biological or biomedical research labs. For instance, Gregor Mendel, he's the father of genetics. Remember, you learned about Mendel's experiments in high school and college biology classes. What organism did Gregor Mendel study? Plants, the pea plant. Then there's transposons. Sometimes they're called jumping genes. They were first observed in corn plants by Barbara McClintock, and only later was it realized that transposons also occur in bacteria animals, fungi, even viruses. Then there's the phenomenon called RNA interference. RNA interference was first observed in petunia plants, but then later they realized it actually can occur in any biological species. RNA interference is a process whereby certain RNA molecules can can repress or reduce the expression of specific genes in the body. Now RNA interference is being applied to other organisms and has numerous applications in medicine. Second of all, if you're interested in what you eat, or in the environment, or in ecology, or in aesthetics, you already know, subconsciously maybe, how important plants are to those things. Anyway, one of the primary professional societies for plant biologists is called the American Society of Plant Biologists. This organization was started back in the 1920s by a group of plant scientists from throughout the country as a way of promoting plant biology and also encouraging publication of plant research and to promote the interests and professional growth of plant scientists. Well, I've been a member of this society for more than two decades now. When I first joined, it was called the American Society of Plant Physiologists, But they changed their name back in 2001 because they wanted to be more inclusive of scientists who are doing research on the molecular and cellular biology of plants. And I think they also thought that plant physiology as a name wasn't as inclusive or, frankly, as sexy enough as plant biology. They wanted something that would really attract young people. I might as well tell you, I was actually against this name change back in 2001. I thought that plant physiology is pretty interesting just as it is. And by the way, physiology is the study of how organisms function. 
And what I find sexy about learning how plants function is that it gets to integrate so many aspects of biology. It involves biochemistry, cell biology, anatomy, development, genetics, molecular biology, physics, ecology, microbiology, evolution. They look at everything. Some of plant physiology is very practical, very applied, like when they're studying ecology or agriculture. And some of it is much more basic, like studying the essential processes that affect how plants grow and develop and how they respond to the environment. But to me, it's all really fascinating. Now, there are other professional research societies that focus on plants. There's the American Botanical Society. There's the Ecological Society of America. There's the American Society of Agronomy, the Crop Science Society, and the American Horticultural Society. Well, in the middle of March of this year, 2019, I was lucky enough to attend a regional meeting of the American Society of Plant Biologists. It was the Midwestern section of ASPB and was held in Morgantown, West Virginia. There are about 15 U.S. states that are members of the Midwestern section. That includes Kentucky. It also includes part of Canada. They hold this conference every year because it's a great way to find out what other researchers are doing in neighboring states. And it's a nice way for younger researchers like graduate students and postdocs to cut their teeth on communicating their research. And it's also a good way for them to get helpful feedback from other scientists in the field. This meeting's also a helpful way to keep abreast of what's going on in terms of trends in the discipline, science policy, funding issues, things like that. Now, I need to tell you that attendees of this meeting were encouraged to treat specific scientific findings as confidential. So I can't tell you about specific results I heard at the various research talks and posters. I respect this confidentiality policy because some of the research that was presented has not actually been published yet. So today I want to tell you about the exciting stuff I heard at the 2019 annual conference of the Midwestern section of the American Society of Plant Biologists, but without divulging specific results or conclusions. What I want to focus on instead are the techniques that are being used by plant biologists. I think you'll be quite impressed with the different methods and materials that botanical researchers are using today. Some of it's quite surprising. And remember, the things that they're doing with plants now are the same kind of things that they're either doing now or could be doing in the future in the areas like microbiology, animal research, or in medicine. There's basically seven techniques I want to tell you about today. Number one, mutation analysis. Dr. Greg Howe from Michigan State University spoke at this conference about plant defense systems. Now, plants can produce secondary compounds that can help fend off insects. The leaf of one plant can be attacked by an insect and produce compounds that travel to other parts of the plant that helps the whole plant fight off that insect in the future. Well, Dr. Howe talked about how there appears to be an inverse relationship in plants between defending themselves from insect attack and their overall rate of growth. It sort of makes sense. The more resources the plant puts towards defense means that there are going to be fewer resources for things like growth and development. His lab is trying to figure out the exact mechanism for this process by mutating plants, which means that they're altering the DNA sequences of specific genes in the plant. Now, you can learn a lot from organisms by studying their mutations. 
Gregor Mendel, the father of genetics, for instance, was able to develop his genetic principles that you learned in high school by studying mutations in pea plants. Remember, tall versus short pea plants, wrinkled versus smooth seeds. Basically, you can study the function of a gene product, which is usually a protein, by comparing a normal wild-type version of that gene in a plant with a version that's broken, a version that's damaged, mutated. So, for instance, if aliens from another planet came to Earth and wanted to know how our automobiles worked, they might try a type of mutation analysis, break the rearview mirror and see how that affects the functioning of the car, break the steering wheel or the timing belt or the windshield wiper blades, break each one of those different parts of the car, and they would slowly be able to figure out the function for each one of those parts. So basically, Howe's lab is trying to use mutation analysis to see if they can find plants that can both defend themselves against insect attack and still have good growth rates. Now, the thing about Gregor Mendel's mutations in pea plants is that those were natural mutations that had been found previously by gardeners and breeders in the past, and then those seeds were multiplied for use by other gardeners and farmers and Gregor Mendel. Those were essentially accidental mutations. But nowadays, we've got reverse genetics. Reverse genetics is when a scientist purposely mutates or alters a specific gene in an organism to see what effect it has on the phenotype, the outward expression of that gene. It's sort of the opposite of what good old Gregor Mendel did with pea plants back in the 1850s. What he did is an example of forward genetics, you identify an organism that displays a characteristic you're interested in, like tall versus short plants, and you study it to learn more about the genetic basis for that trait. But now we're talking about reverse genetics. That starts at the genetic level. You alter the DNA first, and then you see what effect that has on the physical characteristics of the resulting plant. Another example of mutation analysis came out of West Virginia University, which was the host university for this conference. They were taking this same kind of approach to study the synthetic pathways for plants to make terpenoids. Now, terpenoids are a very diverse group of organic molecules that are critical to things like photosynthesis and respiration and plant growth and development. Essential oils like peppermint, lemon oil, cinnamon, those are terpenoids, and so are the resins that pine trees make. In fact, turpentine is an example of a terpenoid. Anyway, this lab was fooling around with mutating the genes involved in making terpenoids and seemed to be getting a good handle on the different metabolic pathways for terpenoids. Technique number two, CRISPR. There was a talk from researchers at Ohio University, that's in Athens, Ohio, about taking mutation analysis a step further. They're using a technique called CRISPR to make specific changes to natural genes in plants. Oh, I've been really hesitant to bring up the CRISPR technique on this radio show in the past because it's a very new and very complicated technique. But I can tell you that the CRISPR-Cas9 system it's a natural system that has evolved in bacteria so that it can capture snippets of DNA from invading viruses or from conjugating bacteria in such a way that the little bit of DNA it captures acts as sort of a memory chip for the bacteria. It integrates that viral DNA into its own genome. 
And those little snippets of invader DNA can then be passed on to future generations of that bacterial cell, which of course, that's created by simple cell division. One bacteria divides into two identical bacteria, which can then divide into four, etc., etc. So if that same strain of virus tries to attack those bacterial offspring later, the bacteria produces RNA that serves as sort of a guided missile to destroy the DNA of the invading virus. That's the CRISPR-Cas9 system that occurs naturally in bacteria. So what researchers have done now is put part of that system into plant or animal cells and then provided a guide RNA that will bind to specific places on the chromosome of that experimental plant or animal and then make changes to the DNA in that one spot. So now researchers have modified the CRISPR-Cas9 system enough that it doesn't just destroy the plant or animal DNA, but rather alters it a little bit, modifies it. So this means that with CRISPR-Cas9, you can alter the DNA sequence of a plant in a specific spot on that plant's chromosome. You can alter it in such a way that it encodes a slightly different protein, but you can also alter it in such a way that it doesn't even produce a functional protein anymore. And you can block transcription of that gene if you want so that it's essentially silent. On the other hand, you can enhance transcription of that plant gene so that it's, it's even expressed more than normal. So the researcher has all these different options that they can do with the CRISPR-Cas9 system. This lab at Ohio University was using CRISPR to study the cell walls of plants. What they did was mutated natural plant genes so much that they wouldn't make properly functioning enzymes that are thought to be responsible for synthesis of the plant cell wall. And then they observed what effect that had on plants. They found all sorts of effects on Things like root hair length, pollen synthesis, seed coats, germination, fruit size, they were all affected when they altered these cell wall genes. Technique number three, genetic engineering. There was a good talk from Mark Running's lab at University of Louisville, where they took genes from a fungus that's called white rot fungus, and they put it into moss plants. Now, these fungal genes are important for the breakdown of lignin in plant cell walls. Lignin is one of the chemicals that plants make to give them rigidity. If you think of the difference between how soft toilet paper and Kleenex is versus the office paper that you write on, one is really soft and flexible and the other is pretty tough and inflexible. Well, that difference is primarily due to lignin. The wood that trees make are about 30% lignin. Plants synthesize these lignans and put it in their cell wall to give the plants strength so that they can grow tall. And manufacturers of toilet paper and Kleenex subsequently have to remove that lignin to make the paper more flexible and soft. And I'm sure you've seen fungi like mushrooms that are growing on tree trunks. That's because the mushroom secretes the enzymes that can digest that lignin and they can actually consume that lignin as a source of food, carbon. Now, plants don't normally make many of these lignin-degrading enzymes, otherwise it would digest itself. But what this lab is doing is inserting those genes into moss plants. Of course, mosses are those tiny plants that look like green carpet that we often see growing in the forest floor or even the shadier parts of our gardens. So you might wonder, how is this useful, putting the genes for lignin digestion into moss plants? Why do that? Well, first of all, there's the biofuel industry. 
If 30% of wood is lignin, and you now have an efficient way to break that down into carbon, that could be a good source of fuel. Secondly, it could be useful to the paper industry as a way of breaking down the lignin during the manufacturing of tissue paper or toilet paper. And finally, it could be helpful in digestion of waste products. This could be a good way for biodigesters to break down paper, cardboard, things like that. Then you might wonder, okay, if you need these specific enzymes that break down plant lignin, and those genes are already found in white rot fungus, why not use white rock fungus directly instead of putting their genes into moss plants? Well, apparently it has to do with quality control. Fungi is just too difficult to control in bioreactors, whereas moss is easier to grow there. Technique number four, using rhizobacteria. The Ohio State University is doing some interesting stuff with adding specific strains of soil bacteria called rhizobacteria to horticultural plants. Now, these are not ordinary bacteria. Some of them enhance nutrient uptake by the plant. Some of them produce hormones that influence the growth and development of the plant. And some of them affect the ability of the plant to respond to drought stress. And what this group is doing is basically screening a large number of bacterial strains to see which ones do the best at improving the growth of three kinds of garden flower species, petunias, impatiens, and pansies. They're actually looking at nine different species of rhizobacteria and 60 different strains. And they were testing these bacteria-plant combinations under different conditions of drought stress and nutrient deficiencies. I spoke to the presenter of this talk, Nathan Nordstedt, about this during one of the breaks in the conference, and he said that the horticultural industry is already adding rhizobacteria to the bedding plants that home gardeners are purchasing in garden shops. The bacteria are often called biostimulants, and it's kind of neat because it's a natural way of improving the growth and survival of horticultural plants. Apparently, bedding plants like petunias and pansies represent something like a $4.4 billion industry, and it would be great to enhance the growth of these plants without applying artificial chemicals. Use natural bacteria instead. Purdue University is also doing this kind of research. One talk I heard involved them looking for bacterial species that do things like solubilizing phosphorus for plants to take up, fixing nitrogen from the air and making it available to plants, and chelating iron from the soil so that it's more available to plants. And then there are other bacterial species that produce plant hormones that can influence the way plants grow and develop and respond to the environment. There are other bacterial species that can help protect plants from infection by pathogens. This group at Purdue is looking at all these different bacterial species and seeing how plants respond to them. Plant technique number five, gender determination. Dr. Stephen DeFazio at Western Virginia University gave a good talk called Sex in Salicaceae. Here he was talking about plants like the willow tree, the cottonwood trees, aspen trees, and how sex is determined in those different species. Now, you already know that gender determination in humans is with the XY chromosomes. Males have one X and one Y chromosome, whereas females have two X chromosomes. 
In the Salicaceae family, the plants are also unisex with either male flowers or female flowers. And the Defazio lab is doing a lot of work trying to trace down how the gender of these plants is determined. They did narrow it down to specific chromosomes, but it was different in willow trees versus the aspen cottonwood group of trees. And there was apparently some moving around of the sex genes from one chromosome to another during evolution. Technique number six, twin studies. Okay, you might have heard about the twin studies they do in people. You take pairs of identical twins and compare them to one another for behavioral traits. Oh, let's say alcoholism. And then you compare that with how tightly linked that trait is between fraternal twins. Making these kinds of comparisons between identical twins versus fraternal twins allows researchers to calculate the degree to which that trait is actually due to genetics and not just the environment. Researchers use twin studies to examine the question of nature versus nurture. Well, there was an interesting talk coming out of the Ohio State University down in Wooster, Ohio, with almond trees. Apparently, twinning in almond is not as rare as you might think. You can get two plants growing from a single fertilization event. Those are monozygotic twins. So next time you're eating a can of almonds, see if you can spot a seed that is smaller than normal and all shriveled up looking. That might be one of those almond twins. I know that sounds like a candy bar. The behavior that they were studying with these almond twins was an age-related disease called bud failure. Basically, when almond trees get old, the vegetative buds don't grow out as much, and you end up with bare branches, and that leads to lower production of almond fruit. That's where the seeds we eat come from. Well, this group used a technique whereby they can look at methylation of the DNA in these almond twin plants. We've talked about DNA methylation before when we've discussed epigenetics. Just look up our January 14, 2019 episode about nature versus nurture. Anyway, these bare branches that you see in almond trees are thought to be due to old age, not an infectious disease. Even if you take a stem cutting from an older plant that has bud failure and make a whole new plant out of it, it'll still have bud failure and they suspect that DNA methylation might have something to do with it. When the DNA that occurs in the promoter region of our genes gets methylated, they don't get transcribed as much. And transcription is what you need if that gene's DNA code is actually going to be made into an RNA molecule, which leads to a functional protein. When genes get methylated, they're essentially silenced. Well, this lab had two sets of monozygotic almond twins where one plant was showing bud failure and the other wasn't. And they set about figuring out what specific genes were methylated in each and looked for methylation patterns that correlated with the disease. Now, don't forget, I'm not really supposed to tell you which genes popped up as being different. But now that they know what these genes are, that'll give them a much better understanding of what causes bud failure in almond trees and maybe all plants. And maybe they can look at these genes in almond tree breeding programs and specifically select for plants that aren't going to show bud failure in their old age. This could help increase almond yields in the future. And finally, number seven on my list of plant biology techniques, the patch clamp method. Now, Dr. Elizabeth Haswell from Washington University, St. Louis, gave the keynote talk at the ASPB meeting. 
There were two parts to her talk. The first part was about measuring ion channel activity in plants. And one of the techniques she uses is called the patch clamp technique. And it basically involves isolating a single plant cell membrane and measuring the flow of ions across that membrane through specific protein passageways called channels. Now, ions are small but charged atoms or molecules. Now, there's lots of reasons why plants and animals move ions from one side of a membrane to the other side of the membrane, but she is particularly interested in mechanosensitivity in plants. Mechanosensitivity. Plants are being mechanosensitive when they respond to things like gravity, pressure, or touch. So, when a potted plant falls over and the stem starts to grow upwards again after a few hours and the roots start growing downwards, that's mechanosensitivity. Or when pea vines grow along the ground until they reach the pole that you put down in your garden and the pea plant starts to grow up that pole as a vine, that's mechanosensitivity. Now, a perfect part of the plant to use for this kind of study is pollen. You know, those microscopic little balls of cells that are produced by the male part of the flower. They contain the sperm. Think about what happens when a pollen grain lands on the female part of a flower. First, it has to adhere to the female part. That's called the stigma. Secondly, the pollen grain has to absorb water. Third, the pollen grain germinates. And then fourth, the pollen tube has to grow down the stigma and style towards the egg sac of the female part of the flower. And then lastly, the sperm nuclei have to emerge from the tube and get carried to the egg for fertilization. This pollination process involves a lot of touching. So these special channels are going to be induced. So Dr. Haswell is isolating specific genes involved in how ion channels of pollen grains respond to all this mechanical stimulation. And then her lab is mutating them in such a way that they're either non-functional or maybe they're overexpressed, which means they're making lots of RNA, which probably lead to lots of protein for that specific gene. So that's pretty cool. But the other thing that Dr. Haswell spoke about that I was particularly interested in was her podcast about science. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. So tune into the show next week to hear what Dr. Haswell said about science podcasting. This will be of special interest to any scientists who are interested in communicating with the public about their discipline or any aspect of science, really. Our show, Bench Talk, is looking for other scientists who might want to try their hand at podcasting. So if you happen to be a scientist and listening to this show today, contact us if you would like to contribute a story. You can get a hold of us on our Facebook page or email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. So anyway, that's my report from the 2019 Annual Conference of the Midwest Section of the American Society of Plant Biologists. I'd like to thank the organizers of the conference, like Dr. Catherine Schrick, chair of that section, and the host campus, West Virginia University, which is in Morgantown, West Virginia. The conference was really well organized, and it really helped me get up to date on what plant physiologists around the Midwest are doing these days. And now, hopefully, you are a bit more aware of the exciting things going on in plant biology research. Thank you. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. 
Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.